0: Now, as we've been studying the life of David, I think I said way at the outset that when we think of the life of David, typically we can think of two stories in his life. We remember when he was a young shepherd boy and when he took on Goliath and, uh, you know, slayed the giant, right? And, uh, and then the next one is the story that we're going to be looking at today, this sin with Bathsheba. And... Uh, so these two events are really high, like they, they, they the, one is obviously the highlight of his life and one is at the lowest point of his life that you can even imagine. It's just this spectacular disaster, this epic failure on his part. And um, so I look forward to kind of diving into that a, a little bit more as well. But I think it's fair to say right at the outset that Every one of us has the capacity to totally blow it. In fact, we do. And so this message is um, about how not just to, like, avoid sin, but really what to do when we recognize it. Um, It's hard to avoid sin. You probably have discovered this, right? You, You come somewhere, and there's a park bench, and there's a sign that says wet paint on it. And there's just something in us that wants to test it and say, is that true? Um, Our hearts are inclined to these things, it seems. Um, So it's hard to avoid it, but how do we recognize it? And then when we recognize it, what do we do about it? And so I believe that we all need to hear a message like this, as difficult as it is. And Anna took a very difficult subject, I thought, and and just tried to present it in a way that even kids could understand that to to some degree. Um, But we need to hear this because one of the things that I've discovered, sometimes in my own life, the hard way, but also in just walking alongside people the incredible pain and heartache that personal disaster brings. But then at the same time, to turn that around and to experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus when we turn to Him. And so I invite you, if you have your Bibles this morning, to turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to read all of this. Perhaps this is familiar to you. Perhaps this is brand new to you. Um, but what I would encourage you to do is even after this message, take some time this afternoon, sit down, and read through those two chapters. Because what you'll find is then as you read it, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that from this morning, or another thought gets triggered, or the Holy Spirit, I, I pray, will, will bring out something in your reading even as you spend some time doing that. So please uh, put that in your mind to say, I'm going to get to that sometime today. I've organized my thoughts under just three words today, and then I'm going to give you some three words under those three words, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the three words are simply this. Rooftops, rebukes, and repentance. So let's start with rooftops. What we find if we were to read uh, beginning in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 11, David's army is off, and they're fighting a successful battle, while David himself is at home losing a spiritual battle. And one afternoon, after a nap, David gets up and he's walking around on the flat roof of the palace. And it's from up on this vantage point that he's able to look down, perhaps onto the roof or a courtyard of another nearby home, and there he sees what the Bible is very descriptive about it, a beautiful woman bathing. So we don't need to go into much more. We can imagine exactly what he saw uh, at at this point. And so this kind of piques his interest a little bit. And so he sends someone to find out who she is. And he learns in verse 3, the messenger comes back and says this, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now upon receiving that information, that should have stopped David dead in his tracks. She was a woman with a name, uh, not some object for his own personal gratification. Uh, she had personal dignity. He, he should have been respecting her and, 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 and such. In fact, she's someone's daughter, Eliam, and very specifically another man's wife. That man, or Bathsheba's husband, was named Uriah, and he was in fact one of David's best army officers. But at this point, David makes a colossal mistake. He willfully ignores what he knows to be true and right. Because the law was clear. Exodus 20 verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You should not covet another man's wife. And the consequence of breaking the law was also clear. And so you have to wonder, did David now, as king, did some of his, this kind of go to his head? And did he somehow think that he was above the law? And David chooses to ignore all that he knows to be true and right, and he continues to pursue her. And so he sends messengers to go and get her. She comes. They slept together. And in case you might think, they just cuddled, spooned for the night, kept each other warm. Sometime later, the Bible says she sends a message to David, "'I'm pregnant.'" It's stunning, isn't it? I mean, first of all, that the Bible would just even include this. It's just, it's kind of embarrassing. Here, David, who we've used words like brave and kind and compassionate. and uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Quinn did a great job of unpacking uh, just David's heart for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and and just the, the love and the compassion that he had for him and now this well let me give you three words that i think summarize david's failure on the rooftop and uh, and maybe something that parallels what can happen in our own lives all too easy the first word i'm going to give you is just the word saw so david sees with his eyes this beautiful woman now Seeing isn't the problem. The problem is, is that he kept looking. And as he kept looking, he went places in his mind that he shouldn't have gone. And he started to lust after her. Sometimes we can't help seeing, but we need to be able to look away. Uh, Martin Luther has a great quote about temptation. And he says this, he says, You can't keep a bird from flying over your head but you can't keep them from nesting in your hair. And I've always loved that. I know I've shared that before, but I, I think it's so visually descriptive of, these, of the fact that thoughts can come. We can see things with our eyes, but it's what we do in that moment. Do we keep looking or do we move away? The next word I want you to notice is the word scent. Sent. The verb actually, to send, occurs 12 times here in chapter 11 alone. And it begins with David sending his army to fight the Ammonites. Then David sent someone to find out who this woman was that he saw. Then David sent messengers to go get her. And you just see this over and over again. And the point I want to make with that is that the word sent really signifies the power and the authority that David had. He was the king, he was the ruler. If he told the, his warriors to jump, they would ask how high they, they everybody had you know they knew that he had the authority and the power, and so he was able to send and sadly, like many even today, David uses his power here to control and to take advantage of to. to to manipulate a situation, to fulfill his desires, and so he sent for the woman. The next word is, is that he then took. It really is kind of an extension of the power that he had, but he took for himself what was not his to take, and he took another man's wife. And so all of this is so wrong. It's just total epic failure on his part. But at this point, he doesn't even own it. In fact, he doubles down on his sin. He knows it's wrong. He wants to try to cover it up. And so he comes up with what I'll call three failed plans for a cover-up. Plan A is flat-out manipulation. He, he uses his power again, and he sends for, for Uriah, who's a valiant war, warrior who's committed. He's on the front lines, and he sends for him because he, David's thinking, if I can get Uriah back home, get him to sleep with his wife, she's going to, nine months from now, is going to give birth, and nobody will ever know. This is his diabolical plan to cover up his sin. Uriah doesn't go home. Well, this frustrates David, so he has to come up with plan B, which is just simply more manipulation. Because David hears that Uriah doesn't go home, and he's a little ticked off, and so he sends for him again. He uses his power and his authority, who's not going to go to him, and he starts to question Uriah. And Uriah is really principled. And some scholars actually think that Uriah may have actually already known, but maybe out of his own fear, he didn't confront David with this, and you read some of the exchange there, and you begin to wonder, is there some truth to that? Because this wasn't a sin done under the cover of darkness that only David and Bathsheba knew about. There were messengers involved, there were people involved, there were maybe people who saw her leave that morning from David's palace, the rumor mill starts to talk, and pretty soon there's some. I kind of wonder what happened with David and Bathsheba. And there's a part where Uriah's talking and he kind of says, you mean to go home to my wife? And You can almost imagine him putting a little emphasis on that my, and maybe just sticking the... The knife in a little bit and just trying to prick David's conscience a little bit. But David does all that he can to get Uriah to go home, including in this scene, getting him then drunk, hoping that in that state he'll go home to his wife and lay with her and then, again, cover up his sin. Again, Uriah doesn't do that. So David has to come up with plan C. At this point, it's just... Amount, it's nothing less really than murder at the hands of someone else because David sets it all up. And so he sends a message with Uriah back to the commander Joab who's going to be completely complicit with this. Joab is the commander actually of the army with this message and they're basically setting a plan in place where Uriah will certainly be killed in the front lines of battle. I mean... What a m like you think about this, there's lust and there's adultery and there's treachery and there's murder. It's hard for us to really wrap our minds around this. It's a complete disaster. And as the story goes, Uriah is killed in battle, and the text just says that Bathsheba mourned then for the loss of her husband. But David still wants to cover his sin. And so what does he do? He takes her as yet another wife, and then she gives birth to a son. And you almost imagine David at this point saying, well, I kind of feel bad that Uriah died and a bunch of other soldiers in this plan that kind of went wrong died. And, but you know what? All's well that ends well. I got away with it. And the narrator makes it clear as to what God thought about this whole sordid affair. Verse 27 says, But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord was displeased. Here is God's anointed king. And God is displeased with him. You know, when it comes to to this subject, and I know it can be sensitive in some ways, but I think it's good for us to just pause and think a little bit about this maybe in our own contexts. How might we fail in some of these areas? And I want to give you just three more words to tuck away, and you think, well, how does that fit? And um, think about this a little bit, but the three words that I want to just talk about briefly is money, sex, and power. Uh, Richard Foster wrote a great book about this, calling it The Challenge of the Disciplined Life, and that he goes on basically talks about these as three great temptations that we all face. And all three of these things can either lead to sin or they can be used for good. All can be used rightly and appropriately in, in the way that God defined for them to be used. All can be used very wrongly and inappropriately even as we see here in the story of David and Bathsheba. And God, in all three of these areas, has established boundaries. He's established what is best for His people. And when we ignore that, it's to our own detriment. And yet, most of what we struggle with, if if we had a time of confession, we could probably link it back to that. Most of it is our pride and our selfishness, but most of the pride and the selfishness is acted out in these three categories. We have conflict about these things. How many relationships or families or maybe businesses or churches have been totally shipwrecked because of inappropriate use of, of, these, of these three things. As James writes in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he says, each per, in a very descriptive language, he says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. They're dragged away by their own evil desire." Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Very, very descriptive of the devastating effect of sin, the horrible experiences it can lead to. Many years ago, um, about 15 years ago, and I didn't, wasn't aware of it because it really didn't hit sort of... Um, our, our collective conscience is the Me Too movement. And you may recall in 2017 when this became a hashtag, when uh, there was a film producer who um, was, was alleged, and then it's since been proven, and uh, <clears throat> I believe he's in jail. I didn't do the, the full research on this, this one person in particular. I kind of set this whole thing in motion. But about how he used his power to engage in, in, in sexual misconduct with actresses and, and such. And right around the same time, sadly, another hashtag started on the scene too, and it was church too. Because there's just this recognition that in our brokenness, whether there's powerful leaders or politicians, and yes, even pastors that succumb to these temptations and go outside the bounds of what God has already ordained and laid out and bring total shipwreck to their lives and the people around them. This this week, you may have seen on the news uh, the name Andrew Como, who is the governor of New York State. Well, I should say he was the governor of New York State until this week. He was regarded one of the most polit- powerful petition- <laughs> politicians of our time. It was regularly in the news during the COVID crisis as New York State was, was ravaged by that. And he resigned in disgrace this week after a report was released that he had sexually harassed 11 women. And he was considered a future presidential candidate. Some of you know the name Bill Hybels. And when I bring these names up, I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to pile on here. Please hear me on this. Bill Hybels was the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in suburban Chicago. It was probably, it was one of the largest, most influential evangelical churches in, in, certainly in North America, if not around the world. Their reach uh, went uh, everywhere. And in 2008, allegations of sexual misconduct surfaced. Allegations that he has denied, but if you do a Google search, you're going to find out everything from his own daughter um, questions uh, that and and, uh, put a public apology for her own silence on this issue. Another name that you may be familiar with is Mark Driscoll. He he was a pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle that just exploded in the the 90s and early 2000s and had multiple campuses around the Seattle area. And then the whole thing kind of imploded when, when allegations of his abuse of power as a senior leader and how we would berate employees and just some of the things that he did. There's a podcast right now by Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that just kind of documents this whole sordid affair. And whether it's a politician or a pastor, the words are all the same downfall, disgrace, disaster. And 20, 30, 40 years of faithful service can be flushed away in an afternoon because of willful disobedience to God's word. But before we point our finger, At these big stories, we need to remember that they are human in the same way that David was human and in the way that we are all human, that we have this natural inclination to be self-centered and selfish and proud and something that in one way or another we all struggle with these issues. And sometimes we may even tire of that struggle and it can be so discouraging. But think about this, The fact that we struggle with sin is, in fact, evidence that the Holy Spirit is motivating us to resist. The world doesn't know anything about this struggle. They just go for it. But we know that we have a fight going on because the Spirit of God is at work. And so what do we do when we're faced with these temptations? I'm going to give them to you in the letters A, B, C, D, and hopefully this will help you remember this. First of all, A is avoid rooftops. Do whatever you have to do to avoid putting yourself in a position where the enemy will engage you. Friends, this idea of how David saw, this is exactly where we so easily can get tripped up. We see something we want. We're enticed by it, as James talked about it. It arouses that evil desire within us, and we want it. And we want it so bad sometimes that we're willing to engage in battles for it and fight over it. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, commands his followers to do whatever it takes to avoid sin. And when we did the Sermon on the Mount series, Pastor Adam preached a great message on that particular passage. And so, if you haven't heard it or you need to be reminded, I suggest that to you for your listening pleasure. But avoid the rooftops. Avoid putting yourself in the situation where you know it's going to be a problem. So, that might mean deleting apps. That might mean putting on software on your computer. That might mean any number of things. But it's those intentional steps that we need to take to say, no, I'm going to avoid getting myself in these situations in the first place. Secondly, B, beware that it can happen to anyone. See, the moment we think that we don't need to avoid the rooftops is when we're really most vulnerable. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful. We often think better of ourselves and worse of others. And I think we have to posture ourselves with a deep humility. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're given a a new heart. And so it's the grace of God that helps us in those moments. But don't ever think... That, you know, and that's what I wonder about David. Did he just kind of, was he relaxing that afternoon? Things are good, I'm successful, I'm now the king. We've got a successful battle going on, I hear. And then he looks over the rooftop. So see, covenant. Covenant with your eyes, your heart, your mind, and maybe even go so far as your friends. I I shouldn't say maybe. Find a friend that you can covenant with in a particular area maybe that you're struggling with and that you need help with. Job one, I made a covenant with my eyes, Job says, not to look with lust at a young woman. And so you make this covenant, this agreement, where you settle your convictions before you have the occasion uh, to exercise power or to engage in inappropriate conduct, whatever it is. And so... so um, you know, when I say about uh, making a covenant with our eyes, remember that little kid's Sunday school song, "Be Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I think they were on to something. And so we need to be careful with what we see. We need to think about our hearts, where we, we ask God to protect our hearts. Our minds, where we actually covenant to say, I need to be careful what I actually think about. And when you think about friends... You go to them and just, you know, maybe we we talk about triads at TCC where there's three women or three men, and you get together regularly for, for prayer and confession. And one of the confessions might be, guys, I struggle in this area, and I need you to help me with that. I'm going on a business trip this week, and this is a struggle or whatever it is. But make a covenant. And lastly, daily confession. Just make daily confession, then, a regular practice, right? Where, like the psalmist says, search my heart, O God. I have this little prayer pattern that I try to go through. I know most of it by memory, but sometimes I just pull it out and make sure that I I haven't forgotten something for a while. And one of the first things listed there is just simply confess and repent of all sin. And when you start in silence before God and you say, God, where is my heart out of alignment with, with the things that you've taught me? And if he surfaces things, you confess and you repent. You turn away from that. Okay, so the rooftop you are now fully aware of has led to total disaster. David doesn't acknowledge it. He just thinks that he can move on. It's all taken care of. But we've already noted that the Lord was displeased. And so was he going to just ignore it? not at all. Which brings me to my second word, rebukes. These last two will be quicker than the first one. Second Samuel 12 then opens up ironically now with God sending Nathan. So there's that word again, but this time it's not David exercising his power and authority, it's actually God exercising his power and authority, and he sends Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. He's like David's pastor to him, and Nathan goes to David, and he tells him the story that Anna uh, did so well in the children's spotlight, and basically it's a story where the rich man took advantage of the poor man and took what belonged to, to the poor man for himself. And David is rightly furious, and he announces this over-the-top verdict. He's now acting not just as king, but as judge, and he says, that man has to pay back four times. In other words, he took one of those little lambs, now he's got to give him four back, make the thing right, pay restitution, and he deserves to die. And what David didn't realize is that he was just like that rich man who had taken from the poor man, and so... Samuel turns to him and says, you are the man, verse 7. This is the gotcha moment. Nathan, speaking for the Lord, then asks this penetrating question in verse 9. He says, why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? Why, David? Why? Why indeed? And because you did this, David, there's going to be consequences, And he basically announces that the son that Bathsheba is going to give birth to is going to die. Now, I know that that's hard to comprehend. It raises all sorts of questions for us that we could wrestle with over uh, a croissant and some coffee after the service. But I think it is enough to say right now that it serves as a reminder and a warning to us that there always are consequences to our actions. Even in the three examples that I talked to you before about, uh, about the, the Governor resigning no longer a presidential candidate, hopefully, um, after all that, but anyways, i don't oh, I almost stepped into some political land, landmines there. Um, but, but you know bill Hybels we haven 't heard anything from him in three years. Uh, Mark Driscoll started another church, and now all this stuff is coming out, and that's affecting it. Like these things, there are such huge consequences that that just follow. And yet, sometimes we're so quick to feel self righteous and justify in the same way that David just seethed with anger about the rich man. But friends, humility says, beware, be careful. Don't think this can't happen to you. Maybe it's not as public as some people's sins, but the impact is often significant. And there are times that we, like David, need to say, you know what, I am that man. I am that woman. I've done what I should not have done. And one of the things that we can practice in community is something that the Bible talks about as speaking the truth in love. And in Ephesians 4.15, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he ties this practice of speaking the truth in love as an important practice in growth and maturity for them. And this speaking the truth in love is something that I believe is practiced in healthy community. Because like soldiers in an army, we rely on those around us. We're stronger together than apart. And there are times where you're going to see something, you're going to hear something, there's going to be a check in your spirit, and you've got a choice to make. Do you go to that person gently, compassionately, and say, I, I, I'm struggling with this, but I just need you to know that that made me uncomfortable. I didn't like the way that you looked at her. I don't like the way that you touched him. I don't all of that was just seemed inappropriate in that context. It's like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. And we can help a brother or a sister avoid going down a path that they shouldn't go down. And so sometimes we have to go to someone, and sometimes we have to be willing when someone comes to us to receive it with humility. And the real problem is, and this is a problem when they when they looked at some of these uh, situations that have been in the news with the churches that I've talked about already what they talked about is that there's so much silence and complicity that goes on. Just like the messengers, just like the people in David's story, they knew what was going on and they didn't do anything about it. And so we have to be on guard not that we're out, oh, always like our spidey senses up and we're, we're seeing things that don't really exist or we're bringing things up that really weren't true or whatever, but when there is something true, we need to go or we need to be able to receive it. Which brings me then to my last point, and that's repentance. When David, or sorry, when Nathan said to David, you're the man, David could have looked at him and just said, buzz off. David had the power and authority, and he could have done whatever he needed to do to get rid of Nathan. Instead, David now finally acknowledges his sin. He recognizes it, and he says in verse 13, 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan going to David, rebuking him, cut David to the heart. He's been busted. It's now clear that he's not going to be able to cover up his sin. But friends, there is one who is able to cover our sin. And so right after he says, you're the man, and David says, I have sinned, Nathan's able to say, but the Lord, the Lord has forgiven you. Now, repentance doesn't mean there aren't consequences. I've already touched on this. Because Nathan goes on, he says, David, you've showed utter contempt for the word of the Lord, and because of this, you're not going to die, but your son is. And there's so much more there, but I'm just going to keep moving on this theme of repentance. How quickly do we turn to God in repentance? When somebody confronts us, when the Holy Spirit confronts us, how quickly do we turn? Not because we're beating ourselves up over our sin, but because we have the hope of the gospel, knowing that Jesus saves us from our sin, and knowing that in some miraculous way, God's big story is not derailed by our sin. God had a plan for David's life. David messed it up. But David was even able to confess it and return back to the God who loved him immeasurably. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says David's sin, enormous as it was, was wildly outdone by God's grace. David's sin cannot, must not be minimized, but it's minuscule. It's minuscule compared to God's salvation from it. It's always a mistake to concentrate attention on our sins. It's God's work on our sins that's the main event. It's God's work on our sins. That's the main event. Friends, let me in closing give you one more R word because I think it's important. Because after there's rooftops and rebukes and repentance, there is restoration. And God continues to use David as king, leads him in another battle and is the victorious military leader that he was. But make no mistake about it, God did not minimize David's sin. David's sin was great. But listen, God's grace is always greater than our sin. It's always greater. I don't know how this message hits you today or how you need to respond. But I'm going to invite the worship team to come at this time, actually. And I want to invite you if there is something that's stirring in your heart that the Holy Spirit is just challenging you on, maybe it's just you recognize, you know, there's an area of temptation that you struggle with that you just want prayer and some help with, I'm going to invite you to come as we sing this closing song. Maybe you just need to have courage to speak the truth in love to somebody. You, you know that there's something that you've experienced, you've seen, and you need to confront somebody with it. Maybe you need to pray for the humility to receive a rebuke. Maybe somebody has come to you and you did tell them to buzz off and it was none of their business and you now realize going, oh no, they were looking out for my best interests and I need to go and ask for forgiveness of them. Maybe you just need to come today in confession and repentance and turning to God. Friends, we're all in need of His grace. So we're going to sing this song, Lord, I Need You. And it speaks to the fact that we do need the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Let me just remind you again that we are not looking at the life of David to emulate him, to say, you know, what a great man he was, what a great king, why aren't we more like him? The fact is that we're more like him than already like him than we care to admit. And sometimes we love really well and we're on a good place, but other times we completely blow it. We have dysfunction in our families too. Often our lives are very complicated. But like David, friends, we have a great God. And we have a great King Jesus. And our goal is to be more like him. Not in our own efforts, but because of him. So Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you.